So good morning, everybody. Uh, if you're, uh, uh, we're back from a, a, a week's break in London, down south. We had a few days in London, actually, uh, visiting. Have a drink. Um, um, uh, visiting, uh, we were visiting the various sites. We went to the Imperial War Museum. We went to Portobello Market. We went to Buckingham Palace, Queen Lizzie. We went to Parliament Square. That's where that picture's taken from. Nothing to do with the morning at all. Just I thought I'd stick a picture up. We went to Kew Gardens. What really fascinate, What was really fascinating, though, was visiting the British Museum. I haven't been there for years. Certainly not as a Christian. Thanks. Um, certainly not there as a Christian, and, and it, was, it, 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 it was a place of amazing things to see, of ancient monuments and wall carvings and relics from ancient history, verifying and actually bringing to life, it was very exciting, uh, the stories, story after story, scripture, the Bible, um, in, in, in kind of beautiful three-dimensional color, it was amazing. We trust, you see, we trust and believe in God's word, uh, as, it, as, as, as a real thing, as a historic thing. It really happens. We trust that God's word, God's account of history in the Bible is life to us and all the things it says in us. And so that's why over the last few weeks we've been looking um, at the Bible in quite detail. We've been looking at the letters to the churches of Revelation about 2,000-ish years ago. Seven cities, seven churches, seven letters. Jesus' very words, actually, handed down um, to, to the Apostle John miraculously as, a, as he has a mind-blowing, majestic, big, big, big vision uh, of the risen Lord Jesus. G.K. Beale and, and our friend David Campbell, remember him, uh, write in their commentary on Revelation, I'd really recommend it to you. They write this, it's very helpful. The prophetic visions of Revelation, the mind-boggling, eye-popping pictures and images, can easily disguise the point that it, the Revelation book, was written as a letter to the churches, and a letter which is pastoral in nature. The goal of Revelation, that's why we're doing it, is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages, that God is working out his purposes, even, especially in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and apparent satanic domination. It is the Bible, I love this, it is the Bible's battle cry of victory and an encouragement to God's people to persevere in the assurance that their final reward is certain and to worship and glorify God despite the trials, despite the difficulties and despite the temptations to march to the world's drumbeat. That's why, Jubilee, we are looking through this, these, these seven letters from Revelation. So let's read it, shall we? Uh, uh, the, 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 the letter to the church at Thyatira. Um, Revelation 2, 18-29 To the angel of the church in Thyatira write These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, Jesus. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance and that, uh, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Well done. Nevertheless, but... I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, her truth, 
her misleading truth. She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and to the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her off on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. And when, she's, when they're talking about adultery, they might be talking about um, physical, actual adultery, but generally people believe that this is a general kind of spiritual adultery before God, uh, a sexual immorality before God, not being faithful. I will strike her children dead. Then all the church will, will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and follow Jesus faithfully and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That that one will rule with them, with, will, will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I hope my voice is going to hang out until the end of this. Um, so really, when I look at this letter, it's really about a lot of things. We could talk about a whole load of things, but ultimately, I think the big picture, if you like, is it boils down to what we believe, what we regard as truth and real freedom in Christ. How Jesus' truth, if you like, shapes what we do and how we would behave. That was the problem here at Thyatira. And so three words or phrases, really, that I want to pull out of this passage this morning. There's loads of stuff in it, but I'm going to take three words, and f- words or phrases. So point one, who's speaking? The Son of God, point one. Point two, what's he saying? You tolerate more than me, says Jesus. And thirdly, final point, why should we take notice? Because he is the morning star, the light of the world. Verse 28. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for this um, um, serious passage in Scripture. Thank you, Lord, that these letters were written as real letters to real churches, that people read them out to their churches so that their churches would wake up and open their ears, as it said there, and listen to the Word of God and allow that Word of God to change them individually and together as Uh, those churches pressed on in mission um, in the early church. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll do the same this morning, that you'll breathe your word, that you'll breathe life into us this morning, that your word will lift us, that your word will speak to us, that your word will shape us and challenge us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So firstly, who's speaking? Well, it's the Son of God. 
Um, we, live, we live in a funny old world, don't we? Um, a confused world sometimes, or that's how I see it. A world that tries to make sense of itself, but keeps tripping up on its own reasoning and logic. We see that quite a lot in lots of different things. A world that seeks wisdom often through disguised foolishness. Now that shouldn't come as a surprise to you. Uh, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.19, the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Yeah, it shouldn't come as a surprise. And one of the areas, one of the examples of that is how we approach truth in the world we live in. It's a good example. You see, on the one hand, truth in many ways is the thing we strive for. Truth um, uh, in science, in media, in philosophy, in medicine. But on the other hand, also, but on the other hand, um, over over the last, particularly the last few years, truth. Uh, has become a little bit of, of, of the enemy of the state, to quote a famous film. People don't like doctrine. They say things like, the biggest problem that I have with Christianity, you lot, is that you believe in things that are absolute, that all your followers should believe in the same thing. Uh, and, and when a religion does that, it leads to oppression and the loss of freedom. No, 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 Christianity isn't for me, thank you very much. I want to be free, I'm liberal. And as for wanting other people to believe in, the, in what you believe in, I, I think you better stop right there. In fact, a Supreme Court ruling in 1992 in the States uh, really enshrines what our culture thinks about truth these days. It says, at the heart of liberty... In the, is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Yeah. Truth has become anybody's guess. And the consequences of that we see every day on the TV and in our purpose. And so here in Thyatira, these early Christians are finding their feet, grappling with the truth. They're discovering how God's truth works in a conflicting culture, very like ours actually. They are exploring how the good news, the brilliant joy news of Jesus looks like something in their lives. Even in the midst of terrible persecution uh, and temptation to forsake all that they believed in. And so right at the start of this letter, Jesus says, well done church. Well done church. It's not easy. You're, do, you're doing well in many ways. And I'd say that to us, you. Well done, church. Well done, church. We've come a long way, haven't we? It says, verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. We're now doing a lot more than we did at first. Get in there, Thyatira Community Church, TCC. But... But, wait for it, nevertheless, Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, giving God's truth. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and to the eating of food sacrificed to idols. That's Jesus' problem with this church at Thyatira, TCC. And, and it's primarily a truth issue. So who's Jezebel? Let's get into it. Well, Jezebel here is a type of person. It's not the lady in this church's actual name, probably. Um, <clears throat> it's a way of describing her based on an actual woman who lived quite a bit 
uh, of time before that in the Old Testament, in the days of Elijah. She was a very powerful woman, actually. Jezebel, as many of you already will know, you can read about it in Kings. Um, um, know from your Old Testament reading, incited her weak husband, King Ahab, the ruler, uh, who's meant to be the ruler of God's people, to abandon the worship of Yahweh, the true God of Israel, and to encourage worship of other gods and terrible practices, worshipping Baal and Asherah uh, instead of Yahweh, the true God. She represents, if you like, false prophets or alternative truth or a compromised faith or a diluted faith. Jezebel. Now in Thyatira church, there's a woman like that um, many years later. Don't listen to those teachers. Uh, we have new insights now. Yeah, I've got a secret for you. We have deep knowledge. We have new scholars and new interpretations and new books and new perspectives uh, and, and, and experiences because we have a spirituality that's evolved way beyond those primitive ideas. New truth. An alternative truth. A lie, actually. That's what Jesus is saying. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into all the stuff that goes on. And you know what? This distortion of the truth has been going on for centuries, actually. And we need to watch this in the church, our church. You see, truth is very important. Truth is very powerful. And so our culture says if you claim to have absolute truth, you'll manipulate people with it. You'll dominate them, you'll oppress them. Claiming to have absolute truth is dangerous. What Christianity has been doing for years, actually, claiming absolute truth. Uh, a guy called Foucault, who was um, a disciple of Nietzsche uh, back in the 1800s, but Foucault's a bit more up to date. Uh, he's a very influential, I think he's an atheist philosopher, <coughs> um, said this, truth is the thing of this world. There's no such thing as divine truth, in other words. Truth is a thing of this world. It is produced only by a virtue of multi, multiple forms of constraint, uh, as in it's limiting, it's oppressive, and it induces regular effects of power and control and manipulation. That's what Foucault said in, um, uh, 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 early in the 1900s. What's he saying? He's saying those of you who claim to have truth are just playing the power game. They want recognition. They want control. They want to be on top, what philosophers call... Now, here's a, here, you're going to be really clever if you say this in your school or in your, uh, at the school gate. What the philosophers call the hermeneutics of suspicion. It was kind of like a big squinting. Mm. If anybody said they had truth, it was a philosophical squinting. So if you said, look, everybody, you should obey God's word. This is an example of philosophical squinting. Look, everybody, you should believe God. There's a big idea. Foucault would say, hmm, squint. God's word, eh? He obvi you know, he'd obviously say it in French, because he's French. I got thrown out of my French lessons. He would say, God's word, eh? Is it because you love God's word so much that you're saying that? Is it because you value his word so highly? Or is it because you want to be morally superior? Or you want to justify yourself? Or you want people to look up to you? 
oppressing people, marginalizing people, ignoring people who don't believe what you believe. Hmm. The hermeneutics of suspicion. That's what it's called. Now, you might expect me to say, what a load of codswallop. But actually, I'm not going to say that. In fact, Jesus was way ahead of Foucault or Nietzsche um, when you look at uh, Jesus' reaction to the religious teachers, the Pharisees of his time. He was always having a go at their power players, their control efforts, their oppression and marginalization of people left, right and center through the wielding of the law of God, the truth as they saw it, crushing people with rules and regulations and endless lists of do it. Jesus was always battling them, wasn't he? Jesus agreed with Foucault. God, you heard it here first. You're not going to see many things that these two guys believe in. That truth is often used. That they believe, Jesus was in agreement that truth is often used, often used as a power play in our world and that the church isn't immune to that. But the difference between Foucault and Jesus was this. Jesus never said all truth is like that. Foucault did. It can't be. We can't just see through every truth as a power play or a manipulation tool. If we did that, we wouldn't actually see anything at all. All truth can't be, isn't like that. Let me give you an example. On the 2nd of October 2006, um, Charles Roberts took uh, 10 Amish, Amish girls hostage aged 6 to 13 uh, at the West Nickel Mines School, an Amish school in uh, Pennsylvania. Eventually, he shot eight of them, and five were actually killed. A gruesome story, actually. Now, what came out of the investigations were that before the shooting started, two of the Amish girls, Barbara and Marion Fisher, begged the gunman to shoot them first. They were only 11 and 13. Begged the gunman to shoot them first in order to spare the rest of the Amish children. They said, take our life instead of all the others. These girls didn't watch TV. Amish people aren't allowed to do that. They didn't go to the movies. Amish school kids just don't do those kind of things. They're, they're a very disciplined, if you don't know what the Amish people are, they're a very disciplined, orthodox Christian community. But still these girls did. Barbara and Marion did what they did. Marion died that day, actually. And Barbara was wounded. You know what? When you think about it, there aren't any more... Um, people who are more fundamental about their religious truth than the Amish community. They claim absolute truth. Quite a, quite a few of that community actually make up part of Don Smith's church in Michigan. They are as fundamental as it, as it gets. But do you know what? That day, in, in that Pennsylvanian school, their fundamentalism, the fundamentalism of this, these girls, didn't lead to control or oppression. It didn't. It actually led to quite the opposite, a selfless, sacrificial life. In fact, um, it was all over the national TV how the family of the, uh, uh, the family, families of these Amish communities uh, forgave the gunman publicly, how they took up a collection and prayed for the widow and the kids of the man who shot them. Why was this fundamentalism different? Well, it all hinged on what the fundamental was about. 
They were, fun, they were fundamental, and we get back to the title, they were fundamental about the Son of God, Jesus, who despite his absolute glory and majesty made himself, as we say in Teesside, nout, giving his life for his enemies who in his last breaths on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's what they were fundamental about. You see, it all depends on what your fundamental is, your truth, doesn't it? That's what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2. Freedom in Christ is found only through the truth of the Gospel, a fundamental like no other. Christianity is unique. That's why Jesus says in John 8, if you, hold on to my t- if you hold to my teaching, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you're not a Christian here this morning, give it a go, or more accurately, give him a go, Jesus. What have you got to lose? Your truth isn't working. Or if you haven't come to that conclusion yet, just give it time. His truth, Jesus' truth is life-changing. Secondly, what is he saying in this letter? What is Jesus saying in this letter? Well, Jesus is saying, you tolerate things much more than me. You know what? We live in two camps here too, don't we? On the one hand, we want to say, oh yeah, I'm very tolerant, I'm open, I'm diverse, I'm progressive. But on the other hand, our heart and our mind tug at us. Well, no, actually, I believe in the Bible, I have convictions. I don't want to be a compromiser. I don't want to be lukewarm. No, I'm, actually, I'm not always tolerant. Which is it? Are we tolerant or are we not? G.K. Chesterton said, tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions. Interesting that, isn't it? Particularly when you read it in our culture. And thrown into this tension, we live in a world that is obsessive about tolerance. And we, do, and, and we understand why, you know, I hear why it happens. In such a diverse world, uh, in a world that is so anti-establishment and anti-tradition, in a world of terrorism and threat and war and all sorts of stuff, in a world of litigation and complaints, toleration in many ways has become an idol in our world, in our society that goes unquestioned. And people and media and communities get all very het up and emotional about it. If you don't hold up to, to an open, tolerant view, they say, where you agree with and support and embrace everyone and everything, then you're bigoted, you're narrow-minded, you're discriminatory, you're primitive. That's who you are. Very emotive, isn't it? And phenomenally, here in the passage, you won't get this in many documents or papers these days, and phenomenally here in this passage, Jesus is rebuking the Thyatira church for what? For being tolerant, more tolerant than him. How about that? Nevertheless, I have this against you, TCC. You tolerate that woman Jezebel and all the wayward words, uh, wayward words, ways she's drawing you down. Stop it. Stop being so tolerant. Dangerous. 
And really, underlying all this is not a truth problem, but a confusion, really, about what freedom is. As Christians, are we free or not? Does truth doctrine really lead us to freedom? You see, on the one hand, we live in the truth that our faith has set us free. It has, hasn't it? Jesus has paid the price for all of our dishonour and disobedience and disregard for him. Uh, and his uh, uh, dis- disregard for him. Uh, we're free from God's trans- uh, condemnation. We're forgiven. We're alive. Go and live out that freedom. It's liberating. The Old Testament rules and regulations no longer apply to you. You're in the new covenant now, a new re- relationship with Jesus. Anything goes. It's okay, people. Go for it. It was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Yeah. Liberating. Woohoo! But then, Jesus hits, hits us with probably the most influential speech in all of history, the Sermon on the Mount. And when you really start getting into what Jesus is saying in it, he's not dumbing down the Old Testament law at all. No, he's actually bigging it up. He's raising the bar. He's calling us all to a much, much, much higher standard of living, giving, morality, relationship, conduct and whatnot. In fact, on the surface, he sounds like he's giving us harder rules and regulations and restrictions and boundaries. Jesus, what are you doing? You're crushing my freedom now. I thought it was for freedom that you'd set us free. This is what Jesus, this confusion is what Jesus sees in this church at Thyatira. They understood freedom as a world without restrictions, the absence of boundaries. The fewer constraints there are, the freer I am. And to that, Jesus says, no, wrong, oversimplification. Freedom is much more complex than that. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, because you haven't understood or experienced the much greater, richer, glorious, fruitful, enriching, joyful freedom that I've won for you already. The freedom of living out your new nature, born again, a new creation in me, with all its loving, with all its loving carefully crafted boundaries and guidance and no-go areas, which I know will do no good for you. I know that. That's where, you, that's where you'll experience life to the full, says Jesus. Life in Christ, life in me. A life really worth living. No restrictions, no boundaries, no guidance will result in havoc and chaos. Like a football match, Alan will know about this. Like a football match with, without rules and a referee. Or like a concert violinist who doesn't put the necessary restrictions in his life to give, it, to give time to practice. Or like me restricting my McDonald's intake for this fine Olympic physique that you see before you. That wasn't a good example. Greater, richer freedom requires, demands restriction and constraints. And God the Holy Spirit speaks to us about that and helps us with that. In fact, he's been speaking to us about that this morning. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. God wants an amazing life with us. So C.S. CS, with him, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us by Jesus like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We, Jubilee, we, the world, are far too easily pleased. The gospel of grace is liberating only in in the heart of a disciplined, spirit-empowered soul that loves and trusts Jesus. There's a truth for you. God is saying this to you and me, Jubilee. This I have against you. Dot, 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 dot. What is it? Is it a generosity issue? Is it a sleeping around issue? Is it a lukewarmness in marriage or a distance in parenting? In how, we're, in, in how we handle ourselves in the workplace? With our friends, anger issues, not trusting God, attitude issues, unforgiveness issues, serving issues, our selfishness, bailing out of community, not stepping into all that God has called, called, called us to. This I have against you, says Jesus this morning. What is it for you? He's pointing it out because he wants to transform you. Jubilee, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Pray, Jesus will point out what he has against you and actually against us as a church, the things uh, in your individual life but as our corporate life. That's what we pray about as elders. You know, we're not, we're not scared of addressing these big issues because we know that he will empower us. He'll empower you to get over. Why? Why? Because he loves you. He loves this church. He loves us. He wants, he wants us more and more. He wants intimacy. And acting on Jesus' words will bring you into joyful freedom. It's the only way. It's painful, yeah. But we've got to be real about these things, haven't we? Finally, why should we take notice of this letter or the letter writer? Because he is the morning star. That's what it says. See verse 26, To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Later on in Revelation, Jesus actually announces who the morning star is. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, kingship, lordship, and the bright morning star. um, Throughout the Bible, when when God, Jesus, describes himself as light, he's talking primarily about invincibility. He's talking about sovereignty and certainty. You see, nothing beats light. No matter how many experiments you do, you'll never find darkness defeating light. Never. No amount of darkness, not even in, a, in, in the pitch black of underground caves, Paul Cattrall used to go potholing in the distant uh, past. Even in really dark caves, you can't drown out, drown out light generated from a little torch. On a clear night, a candle on the top of a hilltop can be seen like 43 miles away. 
Darkness prevails on the earth when the sun isn't shining. But as soon as it does, as soon as the sun shines, darkness flees, doesn't it? And you can't beat light. When John first sees Jesus in his revelation vision, he says this, his face, he's talking about Jesus, was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The same apostle John writes in John 1, to, 1 4 to 5, in him Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It can't. Jubilee, I believe God wants, uh, uh, Jubilee, I believe God wants heaven's morning star, Jesus himself, to shine brighter and stronger and, and hotter in all of you and me. He wants, truth and he wants the truth and freedom of heaven to touch all areas of the earth through you and uh, through me. The question is, are we willing? Because it starts in our own hearts. That's why we press on through the highs and the lows of church, through disagreements, through the setbacks, through the differences of opinion, through fear, through change and transition and all sorts of things. That's why we press on in what God has spoken into our church, the four-hour vision, receiving Jesus, reaching out, restoring community, releasing everyone. God is faithful and true. We're not going to have a song. I'm done now, pretty much. We're not going to have a song. We're going to, uh, we're going to watch a, uh, a very short, another very short video. And really, it's a short video about heaven and earth and how Jesus makes a difference. And I just feel, you know, particularly on the back of some of these contributions as well this morning, that I, at the end of it, I want to pray biblically, really understanding. We often say, we're going to pray down heaven, aren't we? You know, we have all sorts of ideas about that. But this, this short video, as we're going to see now, explains that in how the church engages in bringing heaven to earth and how Jesus has already started that process now. So let's watch the video and then we'll pray. <laughs> 